welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. I'm Taylor McGowan, the Senior Wealth Design Specialist at Altius Financial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Williams, founder and president of Altius Financial. Hey, everybody. It's good to have you back. Yeah. So today's episode, we're talking about living the American dream. With current low interest with the current low interest rate environment, we found many people considering buying a home, refinancing, or even buying a vacation or, or investment real estate property. We're hoping to kind of clarify this process, share a few buying tips, and discuss benefits of real estate as an investment. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. I'm actually in the market myself. I'm, uh, um, as you know, Taylor, I'm currently looking to change my residence. So this is timely for me. Yeah. Uh, we do want to make sure that we do a, our quick disclaimer, just a quick reminder that any discussion we have on our podcast isn't meant to be direct advice for you personally. We recommend that you reach out to us or your financial team. Make sure that you're getting tailored advice for your specific situation. This is just more educational, hopefully a little bit entertaining. Um, we're, um, and if you, if you have questions for us, definitely reach out to us. We're, we're more than happy to address your specific needs regarding these issues that we bring up in our podcast and you can reach me at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at taylor at altiusfinancial.com or certainly check out our website at www.altiusfinancial.com perfect so mike just said he's he's in the market for possibly buying a new property as many of you know i'm the millennial perspective here so i've i'm a little younger i haven't quite gone through purchasing real estate as on my own yet. I've definitely lived this process vicariously through clients and I've gone through the process of looking at investment real estate as an, as an investment strategy, um, but I'm pretty new to this whole process. And so I've actually also begun shopping and just kind of comparing what's a good option for myself as an individual and me and my fiance. But I did reach out to some individuals to kind of get a little bit more feedback. I know Mike has tons of experience, but I, I felt I needed to speak with some professionals who are in this industry to, to maybe give myself a little bit more background. So I did just want to take a quick moment to just thank Casey Hoogerverse. She's with the Dixon Group, and she helped me from the real estate realtor perspective kind of sharing through that process. And Kim Crea with Nova Home Loans. She's always been great with helping me better understand the loaning process and refinancing process. So I didn't talk to her specifically for this, but I definitely have reached out to her and have I'm taking some of that information forward into this podcast. So Mike, you're you're the one who's you've kind of experienced real estate on both sides. Some people say, "Oh, I'm looking to get this as an investment or I'm looking to get this as my primary residence." What what are your thoughts on your history from having both types of properties. Well, you're right. Just as I've had some experience in the stock market and in, uh, securities markets, I've had a, a fair amount of experience in real estate. As I mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm currently looking for a change in residence. Um, I have had vacation properties before. I've had rental properties before. And certainly we've dealt with lots of clients who've had um, rental property or vacation properties themselves. Um, so we have, you know, combined, we have a fair amount of experience or you know, I have quite a, bit of, quite a bit of experience in terms of personally and helping clients think about real estate uh, from lots of different perspectives. Um, 
Uh, it's it's interesting to look at real estate as an investment, and it should. It should always be thought of as an investment. It's a large purchase. It's a large, you know, it's for most Americans, it's the largest financial decision they make. So it's an important decision, and it obviously has uh, potential tax impact, um, potential impact with regard to a person's overall long-term security. So it's 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 a big decision, and um, we're here today to, to kind of break that apart, break it down a little bit, and help people make better decisions. Yeah. So we're we're kind of just going to start with the home buying process. So Mike and I are both kind of going through the process of figuring out: should I buy a property? What can I qualify for? And I think you might feel a little more comfortable with: okay, I can tell you exactly what I qualify for, and I can tell you how much I can put down, and um, as a seasoned saver, you're, you've probably already got the, oh, the 20%, I'm covered. Um, for people more in this millennial category like me, it's 20% in the Denver market is quite a bit of money. Um, most of the properties that I've seen in Denver and I've looked, I've, I don't know if anybody here knows, but I'm moving to California and I've looked in the California market and looking at a 20% down payment just seems outrageous to me to think like, who has that kind of money? <laughs> um, or I guess who my age has that kind of money? <laughs> definitely true of uh, California and Denver. Um, yeah. And, and most real estate markets, obviously there, there are certain pockets uh, throughout the country where you could, you could buy, you know, a large, you know, you could buy a castle for, for a fairly modest amount and therefore a fairly modest down payment. But that 20% number is, is big. It's interesting because that means that you're borrowing 80% of what that value is. And so you have to look at it from both sides. You have to say, well, yeah, that seems like a lot of money. Um, but the bank is lo loaning you even more than that. Um, so, yeah. and there are certainly ways you can buy a residence without putting 20% down. That might be a good point to talk about. You know, there's something called MPI or mortgage protection insurance. Basically, you're paying to protect the bank. If you can't, if you don't have enough skin in the game, meaning if you haven't put 20% into it, then oftentimes the bank or the lender might be concerned that you don't have that big of an incentive to make sure you continue to make the payments on the original loan. So they require you to have insurance on top of everything to make sure that you know, that loan can get paid back. If you can't, if you if you just walk away from the property, not having any real down payment. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. Accumulating twenty percent of a uh, of a home in Denver right now is a significant amount of money. Um, again, a person can can do it without the twenty percent. But I, I generally think it's a good idea if they haven't got the twenty percent. Maybe they shouldn't be thinking about buying. But it, it's always a personal thing. It depends on a person's income, how much discretionary income they have. Uh, if they're young and, and their incomes are growing rapidly, then it may be even worth doing that. Um, paying that insurance up front, even though they haven't got that full 20% down payment yet. Yeah. And so that that's one of the things I've learned recently is, um, I think from my family experience, my parents kind of always ingrained in my mind, like save, don't spend, you need a 20% down payment. There's just a list of like, here's how you have to live your life. And there's those are the hard and fast rules. You can't do anything different. And I think it's been a little bit eye-opening to hear it's not like you can't get a house if you don't have 20% down. In some cases, um, there's, if you're a first time home buyer, Colorado even has um, 
these homeowner grants or homeowner loans where they will give you your down payment to basically help try to get new people buying homes and get that market continuing. Um, but typically, you definitely want to make sure you have at least a minimum of 3%. You're not going to qualify for the house if you don't have 3%, which then to Mike's discussion, okay, then if you're looking at it, then you're borrowing 97% of your house. So that is quite a big jump to say, okay, well, is this loan even going to, is this mortgage company even going to lend me this much money? Because if I only have 3%, then I mean, I really can't cover very much. Um, so there definitely are ways around it, but I do want to kind of express to people that 20% is the goal. You definitely, that would be wonderful and great, but we also understand that this is a real world. We're in a crazy environment where maybe people are losing jobs and aren't quite having quite the savings that they'd wanted to have before. I think you want to reach for that goal, but understand that there are ways you could put 15 or 10% down as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although I would also say the other side of the coin is, you know, a person could think, no, I want to pay cash for my home. I want to actually accumulate all of it. Now that may sound even more unrealistic. You know, if you can't come up with 20% down, how, how the heck could you ever pay for a home in Colorado or, or California or most part, parts of the country? How could you ever accumulate that much cash? Um, we're in a, we're in a time period and we have been for decades where our, our government has, has impacted interest rates artificially and impacted lending and the whole idea of owning your own home. Um, I do want to make a, you know, a, a little bit of a social commentary. I, I personally don't think the government should, has any role in trying to influence my behavior about whether I live in an owned home or whether I rent. Uh, and that's exacerbated the problem. What we do is we we incentivize people to own a home, thinking that means we have a more stable society. And so that's a good thing. If we can get people to buy a home, that means that they'll be more, you know, good at, uh, you know, little cogs in the wheel of the social fabric of our, our, our system. Uh, but what we do is we artificially inflate home prices that way and make it even harder for people to buy homes. So, so it's, it has this unintended consequence of actually making you know, because we have the incentives in place, that causes more people to buy homes than maybe otherwise would. That means the prices actually are probably artificially inflated in one sense. Um, and it's a cycle. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we're in that cycle right now. I mentioned that I'm looking for a home. I actually have been renting for, for a number of years right now. Um, my personal circumstances were such that I thought, eh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent. Even though I can afford to buy a home, you know, I was renting. But because you see that cycle going on and the sort of push for more more inflationary policies, which generally will help uh, real estate values, that's it's that incentive for us to say, well, I want a tax break. I, you know, I can get I can get a tax break on my income by borrowing, and and I want to have some asset that will keep up with inflation. So it's a cycle that we kind of push, and that makes it even harder for younger people to to buy homes. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. So, Mike, what what's kind of led you to change your mind about renting versus buying? I know that right now you're currently renting. Well, I guess you're renting and you have real estate that you own, but your primary residence is rented. And now you're kind of transitioning to saying, OK, well, let's start shopping. Should I buy something? What has led you to that? Well, you know, any any um, residential decision a person makes or any uh, real estate decision a person makes is, is complicated. It's, it can be a lot of things. So there are certainly personal factors um, that have entered into it in terms of timing. 
Um, but the biggest thing has been the the development, uh, the political development of you know more and more people jumping on the bandwagon. People meaning leaders in Congress, leaders uh, who have an impact on public policy, Federal Reserve policy, um, not being um, interested in, in controlling the debt or the borrowing that the, the government does. I think those will, now again, I've said this before, in terms of the timing of it, it's difficult, but I, do, I definitely think we're in a policy situation that will encourage more inflation. And, and real estate has a tendency to do well in an inflationary time period. So I want, I want to be more of an owner than I am. As you mentioned, I have other real estate, but in terms of my residence, it makes sense to me uh, to go ahead and get some, uh, to, to use some of my equity that way. The other part of it is that the current environment of low interest rates and accelerating prices on residential real estate, they impact the, the rental market as well. So my rent has gone up a bunch here. Um, so the fact that I'm paying more in rent says, well, if I could, if I could buy for a similar kind of thing, yeah. you know, I could, I could use, I could get equity and a tax break and so forth for the same, for the same basic math. Why not go ahead and do that? So it's been, you know, my own inflation expectations, uh, personal situation, and the fact that I, I uh, want to make sure that I'm, I'm protecting my equity that way uh, in terms of locking in a payment rather than having an accelerating payment. Because the problem is, you know, if you rent, then they can raise the rent on you every year versus, you know, your, your mortgage payment. If you get a fixed mortgage payment, then that typically will give you stability. Now, obviously, they can raise taxes and the insurance can go up, but you have more inflation protection uh, as, a, as a borrower or an equity owner if you've got some equity in the property um, than you do as a renter, obviously. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that kind of led me to shopping and comparing the pros and cons versus buying ver versus renting. I think when I looked at, okay, well, based on current interest rates, since they are so low, you can actually, I can afford a monthly payment that accommodates a higher overall house price than- And that's what they a, want to do. I mean, that's part of it. <laughs> Part of the social engineering that goes on in our, our society is to give you incentives to behave a certain way. And, you know, I am definitely following, you know, you're following the incentives. Um, if you can borrow more money because interest rates are so low or because you get a tax break or a combination of those things, that gives, on the margin, more people an incentive to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and buy real estate, who might, on the margin, otherwise wouldn't. Um, but that's that's just the... The hand were dealt by the policymakers, and uh, it makes sense to, to at least take those things into account. Yeah. Well, and my other thought is um, buying something in your mid twenties. If you're even if you're getting a thirty year loan, then by your mid fifties, it's all paid off, which just seems I don't know, kind of exciting to think. Oh, I probably I probably will still have. I'll probably buy something else later, even if I bought something now. But if I decided that this is a one house forever type situation, then I wouldn't have a mortgage after mid fifties, which I think is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, that is a cool thing and that can work out. That used to work out and under a more normal interest rate regime that doesn't work out typically today. I mean, the likelihood yeah. is those incentives that are there now, if they don't change, will still be there. And, and so people are much more mobile. They, they move more often, which is you know not, not necessarily good or bad. That just means that people uh, want to do different things with their life. 
but the likelihood is that you won't pay it off. You won't actually get rid of that debt. You'll acquire new debt because the incentives are sort of built that way to say, well, if the argument is, you know, having this big load of debt and, and it can get me this kind of lifestyle and this kind of tax break and so forth, you know, the, the likelihood is you'll probably still continue to have debt. The key is, you know, and this is, you know, tying it back to our overall big picture about financial planning. The key is, you know, are, is your net worth growing? Are you actually, are you making the most of your overall income to, to give yourself more security in terms of net worth? Because, you know, it's okay to have debt if it's manageable, as long as you've got the assets on the other side appreciating. The, the, the difficulty can be if you get enter, enter into an environment where you've got real estate that you own that's depreciating in value and you've got that big load of debt on it, then your net worth is going in the wrong direction. And, and that can be the case. So you yeah. have to watch out for that as well. Yeah, definitely. So kind of swinging full circle back to where we said we were going to start. Um, I do want to make sure we're going through the home buying process. So for people who are maybe new to this or people who have bought a house, but it was 10 years ago, and now they're thinking they want to buy a rental property. Um, I think just some steps for those people would be very helpful. So I think you want to kind of start with how much can you afford? For me, this process looked a lot like plugging in a time value of money calculation and saying, okay, what do, what do I need that payment to get to that is the amount that I feel comfortable renting? Um, the way that most people will do this is they, they go on a rocket mortgage or they go onto an online website and say, okay, I want to pre-qualify. What, what is the, what does website XYZ tell me I can get? Um, the interesting thing is in markets similar to what we have right now, at least right now in the Denver real estate market is it's such a strong seller's market. So, and then on top of that, you've got COVID. So people don't want strangers just roaming their houses unless they think that they're actually going to buy. So you may not actually be able to even tour or put an offer on a house with just a pre-qualification. You might need to take a step further to a pre-approval. And a pre-approval basically means that you're handing a lender all of your information, they're running your credit, they're checking your tax documents, they're basically getting all of the underlying financial information on you and then coming back and saying, okay, here's how much we're willing to give you. Yeah, I would recommend that anyway, even even in any normal uh, environment. You, you want to have your ducks in a row, so getting a lender letter or pre-approval process done up front saying, okay, now I know I can borrow this much money from this lender, they've already approved me, is a good, a good first step. I mean, now the other part of it is usually the lender will approve you if you have good credit and, and a solid income and stability, they'll approve you for more than we as financial advisors might say you should borrow in the first place. And that's because yeah. they're looking at, okay, we want to, if this person's a good risk, we want to loan them as much as we can because our fees are dependent upon how much they borrow. Um, we look at it from a broader perspective and saying, okay, what's the, what's the right fit for you as far as not stretching you too much uh, in terms of the house that you buy and your other, other financial goals. Obviously you want to have, you know, the ability to borrow a lot if you can, but that doesn't mean you want to necessarily max it out. Now, that also depends on how much risk you want to take. I mean, people need to realize that debt means risk, and that could be risk that actually pays off because you you end up having that leverage, and you know, you're borrowing a bunch of someone else's money and having a, a maybe a, a property that appreciates, um, but it also can be risk on the downside. As I mentioned before, you might be buying a 
a house that's about ready to go down in value and you, you're stuck with a large debt. So, you know, debt means risk and the question is how much risk you should take and you want to do that in the context of your overall financial plan. You know, the, the rules used to be, and I don't know, you, you might uh, give me an update from your, uh, your conversation with some of the other folks, but uh, the rules used to be you know, taking about 28% of your gross income was what you could spend on housing, what you could afford to spend on housing. And, and those, those numbers have uh, changed over the years. I don't know what the number that they're giving you now is in terms of your, your personal situation. Yeah, so what I've heard, um, well, so it's interesting because I haven't heard the exact, okay, here's how much you can um, buy for, but from a renting perspective, typically they'd say three times your income or one third of your income is what your rent can be. So say your take home or say your gross income for your job is $6,000, then you can afford a $2,000 loan. And then I was basically taking $2,000 rent or $2,000 loan or or $2,000 rent, $2,000 rental payment. But and that's what people have to realize is that there's, there's the principal (laughs) and interest that you're paying on a loan plus maybe an HOA fee plus taxes plus insurance. You have to gross up that number. That's, that's kind of, you know, in line with, Twenty-eight percent, and then maybe yeah. maybe it's now a third. Um, again, I don't. I I always recommend to people to try to try to be a little more conservative than that. But that's partly my, you know, wanting to make sure they have enough flexibility in their budget to be saving for for their retirement and so forth. Um, um, but you know, each each individual's circumstances are unique, and, and they want to look at that. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then another thing you talked about looking up your credit score. And it's helpful to note that most lenders aren't going to approve a loan unless you have at least a six, 620 credit score. It's also interesting to note that the credit score that you get or that you see on a statement may or may not be accurate. It might actually be inflated. So if you're going to like Credit Karma, their scores go up to, I think, 900. So that's 50 above the actual score limit for a FICO credit score. Similarly, if you're checking, um, like I was checking Wells Fargo, the FICO credit score, and I thought, okay, this is looking good. I think it ended up being about maybe five points off of what I had for like Experian, TransUnion, and all of those. So maybe just go direct to the source. I know a lot of companies right now are offering free credit reports once a month because of COVID. So if you haven't taken a credit report and you don't know what's on your credit or what your score is, now is kind of a great time to take advantage of that um, and do it for free. And that makes sense, just being aware. Yeah. So next, so you've already done a pre-qualification, now you found a lender and you've got a pre-approval. Um, one thing to note is you don't have to take your first lender. If, if you meet with a lender and they're great and super easy to work with, very helpful, then that's wonderful. But if you meet with someone and they're sassy and they don't want to help you and they're making you feel guilty because I don't know. But if you, if you just don't like that person, you're not forced. It's still a relatively free market. <laughs> you can work with whatever lenders and realtors you prefer to work with. So definitely feel free to shop around and ask them like, am I paying you for these services? What is this going to cost me? Yeah. I think that's important to note that, uh, you know, uh, it's always good to get market forces working for you and, and competition is good. It's good if you can find someone that you really do trust and have, you know, a good re- resource that can you know, help you through the process. I mean, it's, it's great to have, 
professional relationships, whether it's a lender or a realtor or a financial advisor or an attorney or whatever it might be, someone who you feel like, yeah, I have a relationship with them and they understand me, they understand my goals, and they're gonna they're gonna steer me in the right direction. Yeah. So now you know how much you feel you can afford, how much the lender thinks you can afford. So now you want to go shopping. <laughs> Let's do the fun part, the picking out the house, seeing if the kitchen is what you like. And um, I think part of this, we're kind of in this unique situation where I feel everyone wants to like rebuild a house <laughs> where they're like, oh, I want to do renovations on everything. And so maybe decide what is right for you. Are you looking to have a fixer upper or do you want to buy a house that's ready as it is? How much of that do you want to do on your own? If you are planning to do any kind of fixer upper type stuff, make sure you're factoring that into your budget as well. Um, because that's going to be an added cost as well. If you're saying, oh, I'm buying this house and this is the top of my budget, but I want to tear down all the walls and paint things, then you can quickly find yourself gathering quite a bit of expense. Um, one thing to note is everyone I've spoken to, including myself, is on Zillow right now. <laughs> and we're all going, oh, this is a cool house. That's a cool price. And um, it's helpful to note that oftentimes Zillow is about two days late. So there's a chance that you see a house and you absolutely love it and you want it. You should definitely reach out to a realtor or someone in real estate to confirm that that property still is on the market and it is in fact for sale. I've personally had this experience as well as some friends where you call and you're like, that's my dream house. I want to see if I can just get it. <laughs> and Next thing you know, either the house was already sold or it wasn't for sale in the first place. They don't know why it got turned on as a sale property. Um, so that's one kind of benefit of working with a real estate agent. You don't necessarily have to, but make sure you're speaking with someone who can confirm what's for sale and what is actually available in the current market. Yeah, I think that's good advice. The, the other thing you can do, and, and realtors don't necessarily like well, it depends on, on which side of the, uh, the equation they're representing, but you can look at a Zillow or you know, there are other sites besides Zillow, but the, these resources that show homes that are for sale and, and listing, and you know, assuming they're not uh, really competitive bid, bid up properties or already sold properties, that there isn't that lag issue, that they are legitimately for sale right now, you can reach out to the listing agent right then and, and talk to them uh, if you don't have a realtor. I mean... The, the challenge in having two realtors, one who's representing the buyer and one who's represent, representing the seller, is that they're both going to get paid. Now, they, they both hopefully provide a service, and it's a good idea as a buyer to have a buyer's agent, someone who's looking out for you. But both of them are going to only get paid when the deal is done. So that means they have uh, a definite interest in having the, the, uh, the deal get done. And again, it does increase the overall cost. It can be anywhere from 25 to 3 or 4% that goes to each realtor. And if you're only dealing with the listing realtor, then you can potentially get a better deal because they might take a little bit off of the overall commission uh, because they're not, they're not, the seller's not actually having to, to pay uh, your realtor. But that, that means that you actually feel comfortable reading through the real estate contract or having someone else who might do that. There are people, there are attorneys who will do that for a fee rather than a commission. So that can save costs. A person can, can save costs in terms of the actual commission charges that they they uh, experience by by being a little bit more creative in terms of the contact contacting the realtor or using their attorney. Yeah, it's interesting that you discuss that on the buy side. I feel on the sell side everyone 
notices, okay, if you're working with a realtor to sell your property, you're typically paying them X percent of the sale price. Whereas typically in Colorado, you're not, as a buyer, you're not the one that's paying the the realtor. But I think it's helpful to note that- You are. The deal is paying paying your realtor. Yeah, the the sale is paying them. Right. But I haven't thought about the fact that you- yeah. You can hire you can hire a buyer's agent and say, you know, all I want you to do is, is represent me, and I'm going to pay you a flat fee. You can do that. There are realtors out there that will do that. Um, there's lots more competition and innovation that's gone in not only the you know the technology side with Zillow and things like that, um, but also realtors who will compete on a different basis. Now, the standard used to be, uh, you know, the seller hired a realtor to list their property. They had sort of exclusive listing with the MLS and the multi-listing uh, database. And then you would hire as a buyer, a realtor, you would not hire, but you'd sign up with, you know, someone to, to help you search for a realtor. And they both make a commission. Again, I have nothing wrong. I have nothing against commissions or realtors. Um, I think, you know, in any profession, if you get good advice, then it's worth it. Um, but you can, save some costs by by uh, being a little more creative than that or finding someone who's who truly is representing you as a buyer versus representing the deal yeah so then say you either do or don't have a real estate agent but you found the house you love so obviously your next step is you're putting in an offer one thing that people may or may not already know is you don't have to put in an offer for the asking price if if the house if the house on zillow that you love says four hundred thousand dollars you could put in $300,000 and they can tell you no. <laughs> or they could say, oh, we need to get rid of this. We'll take whatever you'll give us. So you don't, you're not required to put the offer in for exactly what they're asking for. And I think it's quite typical to typically offer a little bit less than the ask price, right? Unless, yeah, depending on the market. Uh, you know, if, if a buyer or a seller is trying to to motivate people quickly, then they might have it very competitively priced. And so it might go for full price. Uh, it depends on the environment, the neighborhood, and how motivated each of the parties are. You, in, in recent years, we've seen where people uh, bid up prices beyond the listing price. So if you don't you know, offer list price, the full price that they're asking, then you probably, you might get, you might get nudged out by someone who's willing to pay a higher price. It all depends on you know, the value of that property. And that's why it's good to be shopping. If, if a person is wanting to buy a house, it's good to know the market. Uh, that's, that's the case with anything. You know, if you're, if you're buying uh, some, you know, shoes and you know about, you know, what those shoes really do cost and how other, what other shoe stores charge for them, you know, when they go on sale or not, it's the same thing with any, any purchase. And it's even that much more important that you kind of understand the value. And it's value that might be represented by prices across the market, but also value to you. Does this particular home offer unique value to you that you're willing to pay more for? So oftentimes you will go in with a, uh, you know, a bid that's a little bit lower than the asking price, but not necessarily. And if you do, you could, you could lose the home. So you have to depend. It also depends on how, again, how motivated you are to get that specific uh, piece of real estate. Yeah. So let's say you put in an offer and now the next step is obviously someone's going to accept. Eventually someone should hopefully accept whatever offer you put in. Obviously it really depends on the market. So like Mike was saying, if, if you're underbidding in a seller's market, 
maybe no one's going to accept your offer. You might need to start offering a higher amount. It also can so. depend on what, how quickly you are willing to close or whether you bring in more cash to the deal. I mean, if you are, let's say you are putting down 50% instead of the 20%, that can motivate a seller to say, oh, okay, they're more serious and that, you know, I can get this deal done quickly. Let's say the seller wants to get rid of their house pretty soon. They don't want any, you know, any lending issues to screw it up. They want to just get it done quickly. So again, all these different points make a difference in terms of having that willing seller and willing buyer come together and, and, and making a win-win deal. Um, so you, you get the pre-approval. You know, hopefully you're, you've got a, a loan lined up. You have some, uh, not only down payment, also some earnest money that you can say, okay, see, I'm writing a check that shows I'm really earnest and serious about buying this property. And then you get help with the contract. And the, the state of Colorado, most states have a pretty standard real estate contract where they, they've got uh, a template that says, here are the different parts of any kind of residential uh, real estate purchase. But they, there's a lot of points to those contracts and it does make sense. That's where you wanna make sure you either understand contracts, have a realtor who has a lot of experience with that, that contract, or oftentimes uh, it's a good idea to have an attorney who's actually overseeing the signing of that contract itself. Okay. You did touch on, you brought up one phrase that I would like you to just go back over. You said you'll put in your offer and then sometimes you pay some earnest money. I don't know that everyone has heard of earnest money. I mean, I've heard of it through our clients and through discussions with you, but I think most listeners would be like, what, I have to pay extra for my house? Why do I have it's to, why am I tipping them? <laughs> yeah, it's not extra. It's just, it's the amount that you sign, you, you write a check for and submit with that initial offer, that initial contract that you're offering to buy their house. So you write a check for, and usually it obviously depends on the size of the purchase that you're making. If it's a million dollar house, it's probably a larger amount. If it's, you know, a $200,000 house, it's, it's going to be smaller than that. Um, and it's not necessarily required, but most realtors will advise you, you know, let's put, let's, you know, write a contract up and you write a check for earnest money, which is kept in escrow by the realtors that says, yeah, this person is serious. Then it comes off of the, the down payment at close. That's that, that contribution, let's say it's a $5,000 earnest money check that will count towards your down payment when, you know, toward the whole deal. It's not like you're tipping them or you're paying extra. It's just, that's showing your seriousness as a buyer and, you know, uh, cashable checks are actually an indication of, of value. If, if someone is willing to say, no, I, I'm going to write a check that someone else can cash or hold on to for, for a month or two while we get this whole thing worked out, that means that you're more serious than maybe somebody else. So it's, it's partly just you know, the indication of seriousness. You know, if a, if a person has listed their home for sale, and they've got lots of people kind of traipsing through and touring it and taking it, checking it out and saying, you know, maybe I want to buy this, maybe I don't. They want to, they kind of want to you know, sort through those people and they sort through it by a number of factors. You know, if someone has a lender letter, a pre-approval process and someone's willing to put down uh, earnest money, um, th there may be all kinds of other things. In fact, there are people who write personal letters to the seller and say, you know, here's why I love your home so much. Oh, I love what you did with the bathrooms. You know, they're, they're selling their side of it saying, you know, you should you should come to, to to use me as the buyer. You should sell it to me because I'm I'm you know I'm special in these ways, you know, including being serious enough to write an earnest money check. Okay. Is there like a a um, 
typical amount that people do? Like, would you say like 5% is your earnest money or is it a specific dollar amount? It's usually dollar amounts. It's usually, um, you know, 5,000 on the low end. And this is my own personal experience. There may be lots of different kinds of experiences out there, but you know, at least a $5,000 check up front to say, okay, you can hold on to this and, and, you know, obviously if you're dealing with a, a larger property, maybe a, a, a million dollar property, maybe you're writing a $25,000 earnest money check or something even more than that to just show that you're serious about buying this house. Okay. It's not necessarily a percentage, uh, although realtors might say, you know, put down 1%. You know, if you can write a check for 1% of the whole, whole deal, then that's going to maybe secure your place in line uh, or show them that you're serious about it. There, I don't think there's any necessarily... Uh, standard rules, but a, a buyer's agent, a person who's representing you as a buyer, is going to give you that advice at that time to say, okay, now here, how much, how much should we put down as a, as a uh, earnest money check? But it's t- fairly typical that you are going to write some kind of check. Okay, that's good to know. So then, obviously, now you've got the acceptance. You've paid your earnest money. Now you got to make sure that the house isn't screwed up on the inside or the outside. So you got to go through this inspection process. Um, I haven't personally been to an inspection yet. I have friends who've said now they're like masters because they've been through certain things and they've figured out what's wrong with their house. They know what to look for. One thing I've heard from everyone across the board is if you are buying a property, do your like go to your inspection because apparently it's pretty common that people just blow it off and say, hey, the inspector will make sure my house isn't falling apart. But it's kind of important to make sure you're there as well. Yeah, and I would even say that there's more to it than that. I mean, the, the process can feel complicated, but so you've written an earnest money check, you've written an offer, you're saying, okay, here's the amount that I'm willing to pay for your, uh, for your home, and the, buyer, the seller says, okay, I'm good with that, and I accept the terms of the contract. But the contract has all kinds of things in it, including lots of dates for performance that each party needs to do including an inspection, uh, including a loan approval, you know, a lender letter up front that says, yeah, you're pre-approved is different than the actual lender saying, no, we, you know, we're going to actually uh, close on this, that we're going to provide the funds to, for this person to borrow. So there's all kinds of dates in the contract that, that you have to go through and say, all right, are we, is the buyer doing what they're doing or supposed to do? Is the seller doing what they're supposed to do? They're providing information, more and more information to make sure that you come together toward a close date. So the, you go under contract once the, the contract is, is accepted and you, that contract is, establishes a specific date in the future where that, that transaction is going to close, which means now you're the owner of the property and they get out and they're yeah. done. Um, and a big piece of that, as you mentioned, is to actually inspect the home for, for any issues uh, to make sure that there's no fraud going on where something's represented like, you know, the air conditioning works, but it doesn't. Um, or whatever it might be, to make sure that they are in agreement that, okay, this is the condition of the property, you know, these are the, all these things work, you, you know, they've been inspected. Um, and of course, it is really smart. It, it's, it's, it's not a good idea at all to, to buy a, a large, for most people, again, we said it's the large, one of the largest investments that people make is buying a home. It's not smart to make that large of a purchase and not be there when you have someone who's mechanically uh, competent to explain, okay, here's what's going on with the furnace. Here's what's going on with the water sprinklers. Here's what's going on with this light switch over here. 
you learn a lot about the house and you know because you're going to be the person who occupies that house and has to maintain it as the owner you learn a lot about okay here's how this you know here's here's the history of this house you know maybe it had a leak a while ago and they had to fix the roof yeah. and so you learn about those kinds of things and it becomes you become a much more responsible and and understanding homeowner when you know what the house has gone through and what you know what what works what doesn't kind of work what we what you might have to be looking out for in terms of the things that the, the inspector might point out they put together a report and say here are all the things that i found you know yeah the the water works and the sprinkler works and all, the, all those things are, are doing fine but maybe you should th you know think about this this issue as well one of the things that comes up oftentimes in colorado is if a person's got uh, if a home has a basement and if there's depending upon the ventilation that goes on in the basement and whether there's you know kind of radon gas that's getting trapped in into the basement or the crawl space so that's one of the things that inspectors do is is test for radon um, there's all kinds of things they do to if they're a good competent inspector to make sure that the home is safe and operable yeah well and then similarly to what we said about looking for lenders and real estate agents you also want to shop around for an inspector. You don't need to just pick the first person or the cheapest person. One thing to keep in mind is you don't have to be certified to be an inspector. So you might want to look for one that is certified because hopefully that that would mean they'd know a little bit more. That's kind of debatable, I suppose. But maybe look for someone that did a great job with a family friend or something. Yeah, having, having a reputation is always good. I think that's always more important than necessarily the... The licensing or inspecting issue um, and you know again if you have a realtor that you feel good about they're probably going to have a network of inspectors we certainly have people that we can recommend uh, for inspections of property um, there's no guarantee you know, that any one person who's an inspector is going to do the you know, do the best job or find things but you know reputation does make a difference and you can kind of tell that's what another reason why you want to be there if, if you have someone who's willing to get up on the roof and they're willing to crawl under the crawl space and they're they've got a flashlight and they're they're doing the hard work of truly inspecting things they're they're looking you know and digging for for uh, information about the house then that's usually a good sign rather than sort of doing you know kind of a drive-by saying that ah, it looks looks good to me <laughs> yeah um, you want you want someone who's going to actually do the work of of looking into the nitty-gritty of the home yeah, definitely. So then as far as the closing process, you show up at the house and it's yours at the end of the day. You sign a pile of paperwork and... Um... Well, that's, not, that's not usually at the house. I mean, what, what really? happens is you go, you go to an escrow agent, um, a title company who's, who's holding those escrow checks and, and they're shepherding the contract. They're, they're doing the research on clear title, which means that you know, there's not going to be some future person, you know, coming to your house and saying, no, this is my house. I don't know why they thought they could sell it to you in the first place. This was my house all along. Get the heck out of here. <laughs> yeah, the, the, a title company's job is to make sure there's clear title, that the, that the person who's selling you the house has the right to sell you that house. They own it clear and, and, and free from any encumbrances or, or liens, and they have the right to be able to make that decision to sell it to you. So they they're shepherding that process and the, on, on the close date typically you're going to show up uh, you don't necessarily have to you can have an attorney do this for you or a realtor potentially but typically you're going to show up and as you're saying uh, sign a bunch of documents a lot of this can be done via DocuSign and other kinds of electronic uh, digital authorization now but you're, you're going to 
there is a specific date where you're going to show up to the escrow agent and and have all those agreements done and you know it's it's a big contract uh, lots of pieces to the contract that says you understand this uh, all these things have been taken care of and that's where the lender does write the check um, and and all the all the financial transactions get get uh, crossed over you know the taxes the, the taxes that have been accrued are paid um, the the utilities are switched to the new owner all those kinds of things are done at that close um, and it it's a it can be an overwhelming process to to think of all the different things that, that are legally binding at that point but that's that's what happens and then and then you get to move into your new home nice so let's kind of just go over some of the tips we had for new home buyers so just a reminder you want to make sure you have solid credit get it basically as high as possible 800 high 700s are great but you need at least 620 to qualify for a home loan most people you could maybe get a federal home loan but it's going to be quite hard to to get that kind of loan if you don't have a high credit pre-approval versus pre-qualify pre-qualify you can do on your own just to check if you're just casually scrolling through zillow and you want to know what range you should be looking at but if you actually want to be actively um, shopping and buying a house, you definitely want to go in for a pre-approval and w work with a lender. Show up to your inspection. That's a key. And get a, a good inspector that's reputable or great with your friends and family. Um, check for your local benefits. Does your local area have a first-time homebuyer benefit? Are there any kind of discounts available? Is there anything that your realtor knows about the area that's maybe a perk for you? Refinancing. So we didn't really talk much about refinancing, but I did put it on my little list here just to discuss the fact that oftentimes if you don't have the full 20% down payment, you can also look into refinancing to get both a lower rate and to actually get yourself up to that equity if you are in a market where real estate is growing. Um, but that also- can where you, you buy a property and you don't, you don't have the 20% down so you're paying maybe some insurance to, to protect the lender and then you see appreciation on the home. So then you can refinance and say, okay, now I have more equity because the, the, the price of the home has gone up rapidly and, and you can get that uh, mortgage protection insurance uh, removed. Yeah, but I wouldn't buy a house expecting that to be your case. If, you're, if you don't feel comfortable with the amount of down payment and the amount of interest that you're currently paying, then maybe buying isn't, isn't the thing for you right now. I would just say, if all of a sudden, if you see your mark, your house appreciating, or if you see interest rates dropping considerably, it can be a good option once you kind of discuss with your financial advisor just to look at the whole picture, but it could be an option as well. Yeah, a point to make there as well is sometimes people, if they do see that appreciation, they decide, okay, now you know, that's, that's money I can take out of my home. I can, I can pull equity out and do something different. Um, sometimes they'll use it to actually invest in the home or remodel or do something like that, and that can be that can be wise. But you want to be careful about just pulling equity out and spending it, or even even necessarily you know, doing home improvements that may not really add to the equity itself. You know, the, again, I want to emphasize: you know, debt can be good or bad. Most people today in today's world have gotten used to the environment of saying. Yeah, borrow more money, and 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 that's not necessarily what we think. We think that you know, uh, strategically, you want to use debt in a wise way, but you don't always want to be borrowing as much as you can, whether it's to to consume more or, or necessarily to invest more. Now, if you 
have a good use of that capital, then, then that can be a there can be an argument for it. But you want to think through those issues. Yeah, definitely. So just another caution, um, like Mike said, you can go directly to an MLS website to look for your housing information if you're wanting to be a buyer. Um, but just a caution, don't completely fall in love with the house you see on Zillow. There's a chance that that information may be delayed or a little bit inaccurate. You do want to think about ownership. So are you a single individual? Are you married? Is it you and your best friend who want to buy a house together because you always wanted to be roommates for life or something? I mean, you definitely want to consider how are you owning this property? Or if you're an investor, are you buying this as an individual or a family or are you buying this within a corporate structure? Are you going to have it owned by an LLC? These are kind of things that I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but definitely speak with an, an advisor or a realtor before, um, before just jumping into, okay, here's how we're going to buy it because this is how everyone does. I think there can definitely be good strategies for, for different individuals. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know, you want to spend time on, on real estate as an investment or? Uh, yeah. Let's go to real estate as an investment. So uh, as we said, you know, even if you're buying a real uh, a, a residence, it is an investment typically, um, but you have to have someplace to live anyway. It, it, it can be a little bit of a different category when you're thinking about, okay, this is a piece of property that I'm going to buy and I'm not going to live there. Now, sometimes people buy property and they and they have this vision of using it as, as a vacation spot. They can go there and use it sometimes, but rent it to other people. Um, and that can be... A, that can be worthwhile as a as a investment strategy as well. Although my own personal experience and, and what I've observed from uh, lots of clients over time is sometimes that's just a compromise. You know, you're you're wanting to have it rented out for the highest price you can, but you're also wanting to use it. And those two ends don't necessarily always meet uh, ideally. Um, so you have to be able to decide how often am I going to use this property myself. You know, in Colorado we have lots of people, including myself, who have properties in the mountains that are kind of ski rentals or, or, or you know, take advantage of our great mountain uh, environment recreation. Um, but you have to decide how many, how many days out of the year am I going to maybe use that and want to use it for my own personal use versus actually be able to rent it out and, and be able to help, help pay the mortgage or help, help uh, it be a good investment. So people have to kind of weigh those things out. Um, one of the biggest things with regard to rental properties that we see people not taking into account when they think it's a good investment is the value of their time. Yeah. If they're, if they're managing the property, if they're, if they're the ones who are having to market it and get uh, someone to rent it and then, and then deal with those renters, collect checks, uh, deal with maintenance issues, the whole management thing is a function and that does cost time. You either have to outsource that and have somebody else do it or you end up doing it and it does take time and the value of your time uh, is usually the most precious thing that you have. And so you have to take that into account when you're actually trying to calculate, is this a good investment or not? And sometimes we, people, we see people forget about that piece of it. Well, and yeah, I, to kind of further that, you want to look at, okay, what are the expenses just to maintain this as well? Are, is this a house where the furnace is about to break and I need to redo the lawn? And like, what other expenses are going into your your total cost before you get your um, before you calculate your profits and definitely factor in how much work it's going to take. Maybe this is a house where 
the people you're renting to are great and easy and you never talk to them and once a month a check comes in and everything's all fine and dandy but maybe it's every month you're going to the house checking on something and fixing something because something got broken again and so um, definitely look into that as well another thing to consider is are you looking at this as if it is a rental type property are you looking at it as a short-term or a long-term type rental is it something where you're the landlord and they're signing an annual lease or is it something where maybe they're renting it for a weekend or a week and what kind of platform are you going to host that on as well so if if it's something like an airbnb where maybe maybe you live in it and you're renting one bedroom um i think you want to just kind of compare like what is your ideal situation and then once you figure out okay here is what i ideally want to do then transition that into okay is that even profitable is that is this me just trying to make it more affordable to buy my house that i want to live in i'm just going to rent a room for now to make it affordable or is it i want to be a landlord and is this a beneficial property or should you look for a different property another thing to consider that we haven't really touched on is like securitized real estate so you you can definitely buy physical real estate. You can buy a, a piece of land or a house or um, a commercial property, but you can also buy real estate that's more, more or less not something you have to really deal with. There's There are definitely different assets that you can purchase that they're maybe managed by other people. And so you just see the statements or you just see the, um, like you log into your, your investment account and you see, okay, that's one of my line items. You're right. I mean, there's lots of ways to buy real estate in a more passive way rather than managing the property itself. I mean, we certainly have uh, real estate investment trusts, mutual funds that have real estate as a more liquid sort of investment. Uh, they have their own, um, all those kinds of ways of packaging real estate, just like packaging stocks, have some plot positives, mm -hmm. potentially have some negatives and some risks. So you want to be able to look at that. I mean, you can't. A person can be exposed to the real estate markets without having too much in the way of uh, active management. If they want to be much more of a passive person, but still have exposure to real estate, and uh, if if someone's interested in those, and we we certainly, you know, in the context of an overall financial plan, using diversification, we oftentimes will use real estate that way. Um, the the big thing is as we say all the time on our podcast and, and with our clients, just to make sure that you're thinking of the big picture, you're thinking about your net worth, thinking about your long-term financial plan, thinking about you know historical valuations uh, and thinking about your goals. And that brings us to maybe the, the, the chance to wrap up a little bit. I wanna thank everyone for listening to this podcast. Quick reminder, we're in week seven of our 53 week challenge. Uh, we invite, invite you to follow, like, and friend us on Instagram, Facebook, and all the social media to, to follow along with what we're doing, as, as well as to complete the tasks in our 53-week challenge. I think this week was a little bit light. We're, we're making sure that uh, people are thinking in terms of their Valentines or the people that they love and you know, just reaching out and doing something for someone they love. That's the, that's the check-the-box activity this week. But all of our platforms are saved as Alt on Altius Financial. It's typed as uh, just one word, and you can see our logo as the profile picture for Instagram or Facebook. We're reminding you on this podcast that since these are typically released every two weeks, and we want to make sure that everyone is getting this information on a weekly basis. So hopefully you'll share the podcast, share some of our social media. Again, I said 
this week's challenge is to do something nice for, for a family or friend. Hopefully you have a fantastic Valentine's Day weekend. As a reminder, if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, please feel free to reach out to us either at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com. You can check out our website at altiusfinancial.com. Thanks for joining us. Happy Friday. Capitalize on your Friday and your weekend. Yeah. Have a great Valentine's Day. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you.